Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. There's little doubt anything that has an impact on mental health will lead to concern. And the effects of COVID-19 on the health of individuals and families did lead to questions. Most were focused on the pandemic, but some revealed a much wider curiosity. After all, we should always be aware of mental health and what may lead to mental ill health. And that's why we're back with Emily Jenkins. She is an assistant professor in the School of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. She is focused on optimizing mental health outcomes for Canadians through collaborative mental health promotion strategies such as health services, policy development and redesign, and knowledge translation. She also has reached out to Canadians and learned about how they really feel about this pandemic. I'm Jason the Germ Guy Tetro, and this is the Super Awesome Science Show SAS class on COVID-19 and mental health. Last week, Emily Jenkins opened our eyes to the realities of mental health and mental ill health during the COVID-19 pandemic. Perhaps more importantly, we also learned that despite the restrictions, there are resources that can help individuals and families. But there still were questions, and many of them centered around one of the most important issues in health, social inequities. We touched on it a bit last week, but it seems you want to know more. Now, before we get to that answer, if you haven't listened to last week's episode, I would suggest that you go back and do so now. I promise it will provide a perspective on mental health that you haven't heard anywhere else. Class is now in session. Here's your first question. Before we get into any discussion about mental health or mental ill health, we really do need to talk about social inequities. Tell us what impact that has on mental health in our community, COVID-19 or otherwise. It has such a profound impact, and uh, it's part of why we're doing the study where we're looking specifically at whose mental health is most impacted by the pandemic. There was research that came out or um, surveys that were done quite early on in the pandemic that you know, illustrated that about half of the population was experiencing adverse mental health impacts related to the pandemic. But that kind of leaves out a good portion of the the story or the picture. And so we wanted to understand who, you know, in the context of the pandemic, the mental health impacts have been tough for many and very bad for some and highly linked to the relative access that uh, people or different population groups have to the social and structural determinants of health. And actually, because of the trends that we're seeing in terms of who is most likely to experience mental health consequences of the pandemic, We, in our research team, have started to conceptualize it as a syndemic. And so this is a bit of an amalgamation of synergy and epidemic. It was originally proposed by Meryl Singer in the 1990s to support understandings around the spread of HIV and AIDS within structurally vulnerable communities. Um, And it draws attention to the synergistic interaction that occurs between disease, other health conditions, including in this case, poor mental health or mental ill health, and the social, political, economic, and environmental factors that affect health and well-being. 
It's so interesting you bring up HIV because it reminds me of what it was like back in the 90s when all of a sudden the virus, which everyone assumed was in a certain population, spread into a completely different population. And then all of a sudden it just blew up in terms of the focus from every aspect of the spectrum. We probably are going to see something along those lines when we start to see the impact, the long-term impact of COVID-19 on the mental health, not just simply of those who are suffering from social inequities, but basically across the spectrum. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree in the sense that we, we we are seeing it across our general population. You know, we've got a good chunk of the population, about 40%, who indicate a deterioration in their mental health and challenges with coping and difficult emotions and thoughts of suicide. But we see the numbers, the proportions increase exponentially for those who live with health and social inequities based on gender, based on sexual identity, income race or ethnicity, uh, mental health and disability status. These are the groups who are most likely to report being impacted currently. And because of the social and structural conditions that create discrimination, create oppression for these groups, we're much more concerned uh, about the the long-term impacts of the mental health consequences of the pandemic. So for for these groups now and and beyond the hopeful conclusion of, of the pandemic. Do you feel that we should be heading towards a system for health care or just simply for human care where we are essentially dividing it up between those who actually are impacted as a result of a virus infection or whatever the infection may be and those who are indirectly impacted due to the situation created by that demic? I don't necessarily think it's about um, a division of care per se, but that they may require different approaches. And so the the approach that I would advocate for is is one that we would call uh, a population-based approach to mental health. And a population-based approach to mental health is one that incorporates full comprehensive spectrum of mental health intervention from what we call mental health promotion through to prevention, through to treatment and, and recovery. Right now, we have a a mental health system that has operated for years and decades toward an acute crisis response. People access mental health care uh, when things come to a head and they try to to get emergency care. And that more what we would call upstream approach where uh, we try to um, create uh, better uh, living conditions for people, where we try to support early childhood develop and development and parent and child relationships, where we put in supports in the school system for young people and and uh, and youth and communities to uh, help them to thrive. Those are really important pieces that can support or promote the mental health of everyone, including those who are more uh, what we would say you know at risk for. For, for mental health challenge or mental ill health. And then there's the more we move along the spectrum to kind of more intensive types of intervention or prevention, specifically aimed at those who have a particular risk factor or who experience health and social inequities that uh, make it more likely that they may experience mental ill health. And then we move through to that uh, treatment approach, which is reserved for the smaller proportion of the population who has, you know, more significant level of mental ill health. 
Um, so you can kind of view that um, population-based approach as a triangle uh, with mental health promotion being at the base of the triangle, the widest, most kind of uh, applicable form of intervention and narrowing through to prevention and then up to treatment. And so those that have those uh, neurological sequelae that are related to COVID-19 infection would likely uh, require um, supports at that treatment level. And, uh, you know, others who are experiencing health and social inequities that have put them in a place where they're more likely to, to report a deterioration into their, in their mental health and where uh, over time um, that may transition into something a little more clinically significant, again, uh, might need those treatment options. Um, but then we really want to make sure that we're not failing to address the, the types of supports that can help our entire population. And again, still including those who, who have greater needs related to their experience of health and social inequities to be mentally healthy. Now, of course, that all happens if a person is willing to admit that they might be suffering as, as a result of COVID-19 or otherwise. What would be the best way to address an individual who is unwilling to admit problems are occurring? Well, I think that the, the really great thing and the reason I like a population-based approach to mental health or why I advocate for it is because those lower parts of the triangle, the mental health promotion and the prevention, you actually deliver those through intervention that isn't specifically mental health oriented. And so it it works to help enhance strength, enhance capacity, strengthen people's coping ability and and ability to move into accessing resources, even if they aren't in a position where they feel that they need something. So when I was talking about mental health promotion and, and giving the examples of um, these early childhood types of supports and supports for um, parents and families that help them to deal with stress and to have stronger relationships and, and that kind of thing. Those are not mental health specific. And, and similarly, in the context of, of COVID, there's been interventions that have been framed not from a mental health perspective, but more from a, an economic perspective, such as CERB or EI, which were intended to help people who had lost their employment due to the pandemic. But because access to meaningful employment and basic income is an essential piece of um, mental health, these are therefore uh, mental health promoting interventions and help to ensure that people are supported in, in, in particular ways during, during challenging times and to help prevent perhaps uh, for some that progression from uh, a mental health challenge um, or difficulty through to uh, something more clinically significant. One question that we received had to do with the idea of not COVID-19, but the COVID-19, the weight gain that's happened as a result of all the isolation and quarantine. Could this have an impact on mental health, considering how much emphasis we put on body image? Yeah, there there is research that documents this. There's a, a study out of the UK, for example, that suggests that the stress associated with COVID-19 is contributing to greater levels of body dissatisfaction. Uh, for women and um, for increased desire for obtaining a, a more muscular physique amongst men. Um, I'm not really sure how this is translating through into clinical presentations for adult populations. However, what I have been hearing about and what Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto recently reported is that there's been an uptick in um, case numbers and severity of illness amongst young people presenting with eating disorders. 
Um, and in fact, they're estimating that they'll treat an excess 30% of children with eating disorders this fiscal year. Here's a myth-busting question. Do masks lead to any mental health impacts due to physical restrictions on breathing or social restrictions on seeing people? Or is this really just another excuse to try and avoid wearing a mask? You know, there's been a lot of debate about masking through the course of the pandemic and quite contentious and not grounded in best evidence. For most people, there would be no harms to mental health associated with mask wearing. And in fact, research published in 2020 by uh, Wang and colleagues examined mask wearing practices and physical and mental health outcomes between China and Poland and identified a higher prevalence of mask wearing at a community level was actually associated with fewer symptoms of anxiety uh, depression and stress within a population. Why they chose Poland, I have no idea. Oh, it was because uh, in Poland, mask wearing was quite low. It was around 30%. And in China, it was 98%. And so they could really look um, at a population level at the differences that this had on um, mental health symptoms. Do you think then that there could be the opposite effect of someone not wanting to wear a mask all of a sudden realizing that Everybody is against that individual like we do see in China and some places here in Canada. Could that have a mental health impact on somebody who believes in something but is obviously being shamed or uh, antagonized as a result of it? Where this kind of crosses into shame or antagonization, it's difficult for me to kind of feel comfortable commenting on that. But I, I certainly think that our population norms have, have shifted over the course of the pandemic and, and gone from mask wearing feeling very uh, different and um, not something that most people were, were used to or maybe comfortable with to uh, just standard practice and uh, something that's expected of people. And, and I think that that social pressure is uh, actually quite helpful in uh, increasing mask, uh, the prevalence of mask usage and, and therefore uh, helping to mitigate spread of the virus. We've spent quite a bit of time lauding our healthcare workers at the start of the pandemic, but that has waned as we've all become fatigued. But their stress hasn't slowed at all. It may have actually gotten worse. How important is that public support to the mental health of these workers? You know, it's such an interesting question, and there's actually not much research yet on that topic. However, a study from early on in the pandemic suggested that organizational supports could be helpful in mitigating mental health impacts of stress, or this particular type of stress. And specifically, um, Heath and colleagues drew parallels between the COVID-19 pandemic conditions and those experienced by military personnel, and suggested a psychological resilience mechanism or intervention based on what they call the battle buddy system, which includes peer support, mental health consultation at the unit level, and individual support for those requiring more intensive services. Uh, to add, though not grounded in uh, research per se, there have been pleas from healthcare workers for the public to follow public health orders that have been set out by our governments. And so I think that this reflects some of the support that may be helpful to those who are experiencing the intense stress of working on the front lines. There's one story that seems to be competing with COVID-19, and that is the opioid crisis. And I have a question here that is, do you feel that COVID-19 is going to lead to a new wave of prescription-related problems across the age spectrum? Yeah, um, they, they call it the 
the kind of collision of two public health crises, the uh, COVID-19 and the pre-existing opioid crisis, where we are seeing a rapid increase in opioid-related deaths over the last several years and worsening in the context of the pandemic for a variety of reasons. In our data, in our data, uh, we are not seeing an increase in prescription-related problems uh, among the general population, 4%. Uh, indicated increased use of prescription medications at the wave one time point, uh, and this slightly increased to 7% at wave two and then decreased again to 5% in wave three. So it's uh, it's not something that uh, is reflected in our data. I had a question that suggests that a virtual session with a mental health professional may not be as good as a face-to-face session. Is there any data out there that can provide perspective on that controversy? You know, I think different people have different preferences. And in our research, we found that for some subgroups of the population, the rates of virtual mental health resource use was higher than for others. And we believe that for some of these groups, uh, the stigma of mental ill health uh, was a significant barrier to accessing in-person supports. And so the virtual modality was actually safer and therefore appealing. There's also some substantial challenges in terms of access and and resources required to access in-person mental health supports. For example, in Canada, many psychological or mental health services are simply not covered by our universal healthcare system and are associated with significant wait times and or fees. So I would say that uh, the answer is uh, dependent on a number of factors, including personal preference and the availability or access to -to face-to-face resources. Mental health in teenagers is a huge concern, and I've heard from several mothers about children being almost forced by guilt into being carers for others, other friends, other teenagers who might be at school or who they encounter on a day-to-day basis. Is there a way to intervene in these relationships so that they can be resolved without any further damage? You know, again, I think uh, especially adolescent relationships. That's a it's a interesting developmental period and one where uh, young people are learning how to navigate um, peer relationships in new ways and those relationships become the more prominent ones in their lives and they start to kind of separate from the, the parental relationships. For the most part, it's probably helpful to provide guidance to your young person and um, in terms of setting appropriate boundaries uh, and learning how to how to do that effectively, I, I think that's probably the most helpful. And then having them try it out, and and that's how we learn is by doing things in new ways and seeing what works, and you know making changes based on that input uh, and information. We know that there's regular support from a day to day perspective. We have crisis lines, which we know can offer some help, but what other resources, if someone is listening right now who is just wondering how to maybe get some help, would be an approach that they should take? Depending on the the level of help that they feel they need, you know, the crisis lines are obviously for those who are, you know, experiencing more of an acute situation where they're needing support, as are emergency departments. Um, So those are places where if somebody's having an acute crisis, 
uh, mental health crisis that they can uh, go to get some supports. For those who are, you know, having more of those mild to moderate symptoms, as we've been discussing, uh, the virtual mental health resources are a really good place to start. Uh, they're accessible uh, from your own home and times that might be convenient for you. And so they're pretty low barrier, they're free of cost and they're evidence-based and can be a good place to start. Uh, and then if people are kind of in that middle section where they're needing a bit more than uh, the online resources, but they're not at a crisis point, then I think, you know, um, reaching out to primary care provider or, you know, if, if you have somebody who's you've been previously connected with in terms of uh, counseling types of support, um, then to kind of to reach out and uh, make that contact again would be quite helpful. And there you have it. I want to thank everyone who asked a question and really do hope that you've gained some further insight into mental health at all times, not just during the COVID-19 pandemic. If you didn't hear your question, make sure to let me know by tweeting me at JATetro or sending me an email at thegermguy at gmail.com. And if you do want to leave me a voice message, just head over to speakpipe.com sass and follow the instructions there. Next week, we're going to be talking about a topic many of you have been asking about, diagnostic tests. What are they? How do they work? And are they even worth using? It's an episode I know you've been asking for, and I'm happy to share that information with you. And that's why it's best to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps to spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're proudly part of the Curious Cast family and are available at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to Emily Jenkins. The award-winning Super Awesome Science Show is written and hosted by me, Jason Tetro. Dila Velasquez is our story producer. And sound design and final production is by Greg Schott. Have a great week. Stay safe. And as always, make sure to show them some sass. Stack TV.